0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I've got the uh, huge honor of having Dave Foster on our show. Dave comes to us from a construction background like mine, but he's kind of gone off into the the other the the, the office side of things with ten thirty ones exchanges and things of that nature and you know guys one of the things that i really love is to have people on our show that have got a varied background but they're still in the in the game and so dave welcome to the show we look forward to hearing your story thanks it's awesome to be here
1: boy i was scared for a minute i thought you were going to say that i was heading off to the dark side (laughs) but i thought probably already there so Uh,
0: there's there's a lot of people that would that would agree that if you're in real estate, you're already on the dark side. So true that, true that. You're, you're on the path, but you know, Dave, give us the short version of, of, you know, where you got your start, how you got into uh, real estate and why, what, what road kind of ultimately led you to where you're at now.
1: Yeah. Real estate was, um, I think like for many folks, it wasn't the destination that I was envisioning. Um, but somehow we ended up there way back in the old days, back when Denver real estate was affordable. That'll tell you how long ago this was. We, my wife and I both had, you know, fairly good high profile careers and our first son was born. And you look at that little bundle of joy and all of a sudden you realize that this career has taken way too much time. Yeah. I spend everything I can with this little guy And we started then realizing that we wanted a different path that was going to give us that time. So we just started researching and looking and figuring out what it is that we could do that could get us off that corporate train. Sound familiar? Sounds like an awful lot of investors today. And all of a sudden we realized, well, gosh, if we owned real estate, remember all that rent we paid when we were newlyweds? What if we owned those properties and rented to other people? Oh, that's great. Well, to get the critical mass, we went and bought a duplex and fixed it up and sell it, a fix and flip, because we wanted to generate cash to start to jumpstart this career. I mean, this just sounds like the quintessential real estate investor. And I was all fat and sassy and proud of what I did until I went to see Turbo Andy, my accountant, at the end of the year. And he said, wow, look at what you're gonna to have to pay. I said, wait a minute, that's not the point of this whole thing. It yeah. was not to take care of my silent partner.
0: I didn't know California. I was buying ICBM missiles myself. Exactly,
1: exactly. And so it was just, I realized this is a problem. How are we gonna solve that? Now, right at that moment in time, there was a huge 20 year court case that was solved between the IRS and a real estate investor who had done this thing called a 1031 exchange. And it had gone through the courts for 20 years and they had just ruled in favor of the investor. So that at that moment then, the floodgates were open for everyday real estate investors to be able to sell investment real estate and buy investment real estate and not have to pay tax on the profits in the middle well the light bulb clicked on i said holy cow we can buy them fix them rent them sell them get new ones start the process we set our 10-year goal to be able to generate enough money to move aboard a sailboat and raise our kids and that's exactly what we did wow raised four boys on a sailboat using tax-deferred real estate dollars
0: you know and it's funny uh we, we take for granted, you know, those of us that have that have been in real estate for a while, we take for granted that 1031 has always been here uh, and it hasn't. And depending on what happens in November, it might not continue to be here. But the reality is very correctly, just like you said, Dave, if you are doing a like kind exchange, you can bypass taking a 30% slice and giving to Uncle Sam, your silent partner, every single time you do this. But you have to plan ahead, and you've got to make sure that you're doing it right, and you've got to make sure you're following the rules. Because, Dave, we know that you always followed the rules, right? And you
1: didn't have any issues with your 1031s. You know, I really don't want to be visited by Uncle Sam. (laughs) So I I tend to keep the lights on at home and the paperwork taken care of properly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah um you know there's only one right answer when the auditor comes and that is yes sir yes ma'am yes and it's uh, you know if they disagree with you they're always right so yeah. that's uh yeah that's well that is very true now what's interesting though is that section 1031 has actually been part of the original tax code since 1920 but for those first you know 80 years 70 years it was something that it really took heavily lawyered up, large-scale investors to do. 1996 was when the floodgates opened so that normal folks like you and I could do it. And the power that it gives us, this is why I asked you to turn your your your, uh, camera so that we could see my hero behind you there. Albert Einstein once called compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world. And here's the quote that he said, those who understand it, will benefit from it. Those who don't will pay it. Yeah. Now whether you carry a high credit card debt, you're paying compound interest on your living. With the 1031 exchange, it's the exact opposite side. That's correct. Instead of losing that, those tax dollars, those tax dollars go into your pocket investing more, and then they may make more to make more off of what you made. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how through a lifetime of doing 1031 exchanges, of deferring as much tax as you can, that you're able to create an incredible portfolio for yourself, just like a 401k or an IRA, except outside the regular investing market.
0: Well, and you know, uh, Dave, it's one of the things that I've I've often told people to do is, you know, take just take a simple Excel spreadsheet and and put a hundred thousand in, dollars in, in cell one and take and move that down to cell two take twenty-eight percent out and make twelve percent on it and then move it down to cell three and take twenty-eight percent out every time you're making money you're giving away a third of what you make it right. takes it it doesn't take twice as long to get ahead it takes three times as long to get to the to, to the end goal and You know, the reality is you've got to be able to get to the end of the game and get done with creating, like you said, critical mass, because if you look at, you know, being able to do what you did in 10 years to be able to to live aboard a sailboat, you know, you had to get to X dollars. And if you had to slice off a third of that every time that you did a transaction, it would have, I don't know that you, you probably still wouldn't be on that sailboat. You wouldn't have been able to ever get there. And, yeah, exactly and people right. don't understand that. And they're looking at trying to make the fast money. Well, they, they fixed it, but they didn't rent it. So they sold it and they just took that as ordinary income or they held on to that house for 30 years. And yes, they did make money, but they made the majority of the money up front and they could have taken advantage of that in, two, in 12 months and moved that to another project. And it's just about planning through that stuff, Dave. And that's that's the thing, that's the power of the 1031. You're absolutely right. The other benefit that you mentioned also that I don't think people heard, but I wanted to highlight is that unlike the uh, 401k, there's not the penalty of taking it out. If at any point you want to stop doing your 1031s and you, you come to the last product and you want to sell it and put all the cash in your pocket, there's not a penalty to be paid if you had just done it the the way you're just able to grow to a point of 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 not having to
1: to give the profits uh up as you grew well that's exactly right there's you always kind of what was stephen covey you know seven habits of highly effective people said begin with the end in mind right so what's the end you want to have income to support a lifestyle when you're Energy levels and abilities start to plateau and you've got more time and physical strength. So so the idea is beginning with that end in mind and trying to use tax-deferred dollars to build up that mass for that. And the 1031 is beautiful for giving you all kinds of different exit strategies because as you go through your career, you could start out like many people do as an accidental investor. We we start getting married later in life, so and usually by that time we've got careers established. So he get you know he and she meet, they get married, and they each have a house. Well, where do they always move, Shannon? Do you know which house they always live in? The one because it's the only one that's clean. So (laughs) so they get married, they move into one spouse's house. And they rent out the other. They just became accidental investors. Right. And that's like just a little taste of crack. Yeah. Because a couple years later you're going, yeah, I need a little bit more of this rental income. So we sell that property and they use the proceeds to go buy maybe two more. Because diversification is what the 1031 will allow them to do. And they just keep doing that at each moment. Or they move into multifamily investing. Or commercial investing and then at the end of the time they're simply generating income off of what they've got because as long as you never sell your property you'll never have to pay that tax right as long as any time you sell the property and do another 1031 exchange you never pay the tax yep so it's possible to hold property all the way until you die and never pay the tax and this is where you get the big bonus. Well, your kids get the big bonus. If you die owning the real estate, your heirs get it at what is called a step up in basis. So they get it as if they paid market value for it on the day you die. So every bit of that tax, if you die owning the property, leaving it to your heirs, goes away.
0: Yeah. What a legacy. Well, and it is, you know, and, and it also is uh, designed to help keep us alive a lot longer because the kids want the property to continue to
1: appreciate, right, Dave? Yeah, but don't <laughs> tell them about the end game, really. Because right? you never know when that might backfire. That's
0: right. That's right. You know, and that is uh, th- That is funny, you know, because I was talking with somebody the other day and they were talking about their tax penalties and their tax, you know, their the tax code and they hate this and they hate that. And I said, man, I said, you're reading it wrong. You know, I said, you're reading it like a penal code, and it's not. It's an investor's handbook on what to do to, to, to profit and to be successful. It's not about cheating the system because, like you said, 1031 has been in there since the 20s. It's about this is the roadmap that we want you to follow through your investing career that will be most beneficial to us as a nation. I mean, think about what happens when you sell real estate and you invest in more real estate right? We need more houses. We need more multifamily. We need more shopping centers. And as you're doing that, you're being encouraged with a penalty. If you don't, you're being encouraged to reinvest in additional real estate. And that is another way to look at the IRS code is as an encouragement, not as a penal code, because you really can make this a career that is lucrative and, and pays you in a way that is your, your, uh Your income off of your rental property is passive income, so it's taxed less. You're you're able to defer your gains until a a later time in life and then step up that basis to your children. I mean, there's all these ways to look at how you are being encouraged to create more housing, which is what this nation needs,
1: right? I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. Exactly, that is so well said. And for everybody listening today, let me recap what Shannon said in one sentence. It is our civic duty to make and keep as much money as we legally can.
0: Right. That's right. And, and
1: that's what the 1031 exchange lets you do.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's funny, Dave. Uh, so how did you, I mean, so how did you find out about 1031s? I mean, was it, were you reading the newspaper uh, and, and you, you saw the end of the civil case or was it your, your accountant that brought it to your attention? I mean, how um, did you figure this out?
1: I have those friends. Everybody has those friends, right? It's you sit around in your chat and you're chatting, you're going, and I'm moaning my tax bill, and they go, Ha, ah, guess what just happened? And we're going to start a business doing 1031 exchanges for others. Don't you wish you would have talked to us before? Right. So, yeah, those friends talked me into going into business with them. And here we are 20 plus years later.
0: You know what's funny too, Dave, is 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 your story is so common because you you mentioned that you had the conversation with your accountant and all your accountant did was give you the bad news. And then you went and talked to those friends who were not accountants who gave you the great news about how to avoid that. And everybody always asked me, How come my accountant didn't tell me that? And my my standard answer is they count things. They don't they don't strategize. They're not tax strategists. They're tax accountants. They count what you get and they count what you have
1: to give to the right. IRS. Yeah, there's no joke about the lawyer and the accountant and the financial advisor that are in their car when it hits a bottle. And the accountant looks in the rearview mirror and goes, man, that was a big bottle. That's really going to hurt this car. The accountant is looking, at the attorney is looking for who owns the bottle so he knows who to sue. And the financial advisor has the roadmap out saying, "There's another pothole up there, but if we turn left, we'll avoid it." Yeah, and that's where I try to live because it costs very little to be strategic and plan more, and what you make in the end is far more.
0: Yeah. So you got into business doing this. I mean, so what is what is the um, what's the reality of what you've seen through your lifetime as far as how 1031s have evolved, if they've evolved, because they, they now they're mainstream. I mean, when you got involved, yeah. this was cutting-edge stuff.
1: Yeah, it was. The first year, 1996, um, there were about 70,000 1031 exchanges done in that year. And what happened was that, in, that just started ramping up dramatically until 2005. I think there was around 550,000. And then we all know what happened right after that. The dark days came. And 1031, of course, depends on profit. If there's no profit, there's no reason to do it. So it just went off a cliff. And But not only did it go off a cliff, 70% of the realtors that were in business at that time went out of business. Yeah, Everybody who had been an investor up to that point lost their shirts or retired or Whatever. So when this next bull market came in 2011, 12-ish, there was nobody left with any campfire knowledge of what this benefit is. So it basically had to start its trajectory all over again. And that's the path that we've seen. Um, Steady increases every year. And right about now there is around six to 700,000 exchanges done every year. Which, when you think about it, that's really quite a few for it to be such an incognito kind of process. Yeah. But it really takes word of mouth and things like this for people to understand. Wait a minute. You mean I can really sell and buy real estate and not have to pay the tax? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: You know, so Dave, just, just so that we go back to a, a, a basic step where you can educate my listeners, Yeah, you sell the real estate, and yeah, you buy the next piece or the next piece is, but what are the couple of rules that you have to follow just to keep the IRS happy?
1: Yeah, because that's the key, right? That's Um, right. Remember, this whole thing evolved because they lost. Right. (laughs) And they are sore losers. So they have to let you do 1031 exchanges, but they don't make it necessarily easy, and there's a very, very rigid process. Um, and actually this speaks into what you were talking about just a moment ago, what's going to happen in November. The last time we elected a new president, um, before he was elected, you could do 1031 exchanges, not only on real estate, but on personal property, like airplanes and heavy equipment and that kind of thing. And with the tax changes in 2018, that went away. So now it is only real estate. There is some talk that that will be once again on the table. But honestly, I think every administration that I've seen in my time has talked about getting away with it. And the reason is because Congress never met a tax they didn't like. So they're always going to say, where can we find money? When they realize what Section 1031 does to stimulate the economy in general, the real estate economy in particular, they typically leave it alone. So I'm not too worried. But there is a very specific process. And it starts with the day of closing. Most people think of real estate transactions as being I make my money when I buy property. So they all think of this thing as, it's the start is when I buy the property. Because if I buy it right, that's when I make my money with the 1031 exchange, it always starts with the sale because that's when you keep the most of your money. Is it right. that? So it starts with the sale and from that day, you've got 45 days only to shop around for your potential replacements. And you have to close on them within 180 days. So you don't have a lot of time to mess around with. Yeah,
0: you know, it- The other thing too, Dave, don't you have to make sure that your contract specifies actually before you sell that you're going to do a 1031 so that it's declared prior?
1: Yeah, that's one of the sneaky little things. It's not necessarily that, but every party, including the people opposite the table, have to be notified. That's right. You can do that in the contract, certainly, and a lot of people do. Some people like to keep their 1031s anonymous. So, it becomes as simple as we provide notification at the closing table. Yeah. So that the other party doesn't have a chance to argue. We just say, guess what? A 1031 happened. Here's your notice. Oh, okay. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, notification now, other, is important.
0: The other thing, too, once we sell the property, we don't get the money if we're doing a
1: 1031. Right. That is one of the key factors, is that, and really why I have a job. I only have a job because the IRS said that if you're gonna do a 1031 exchange, you have to use an unrelated third party who's going to document the exchange and he's gonna take control of the funds. You cannot have either actual receipt or constructive receipt of of the proceeds. And that goes all the way back to the original case of Starker where what he did was he sold a huge piece of property to a large paper company, Pacific Cascade, I think. And he had them hold on to the money. And over the next many months, like almost two years, every time he found a property he wanted to buy, he would have them send the money in and he would buy it. And he said that was a 1031 exchange. So the aftermath of the fight was the IRS said, okay, well, we get that, but you don't get to use the other party. You don't get to touch the money. You have to use a third party called a qualified intermediary, and that's all they're going to do. And so that's the role that we play in the process is the documentation and holding the funds.
0: And that's really what it is, because what you're really trying to show is that, you know, when you do a closing and you're selling a million dollar building and and you've got a $600,000 mortgage, there's $400,000 sitting there. Uh, relief of debt is boot, so we know where that goes. We can account for that. But the IRS wants to see that not only did you not get any of that that money into your direct pocket, but that it went from where you were only straight over to where it's supposed to go and it didn't
1: make any additional stops along the way. Oh, and that's the other big bugaboo is that the IRS is willing to leave their tax in the game but you have to be willing to leave all of your money in the deal as well. And so that's why the reinvestment targets are so important as well. Like to your example, if you sell for a million dollars, if you want to avoid all tax, you have to buy at least a million dollars in real estate. And if you generated 400,000 in cash from that sale, you have to use all 400,000 of that to go purchase the new properties as well. So in essence, everything is transitioning straight across and you never touch any money. If you do, the IRS says what you tax is profit or what you touch is taxed as profit. Right. And people argue, they want to say, but Dave, I put $100,000 down on this property. That's not taxable. I just want that back. I say, you know, I agree with you, sister, but here's the problem. What you're calling your return of original capital, the IRS says, no, that's profit. You're gonna take profit out first. And so I simply ask who's gonna win that argument. Right, and, and that's a very the important weapons. question for so, people to yeah.
0: realize that they're not gonna win that argument. You know, Dave, and, and that's, that's all well and good, and that, that process works well in a normal market, but, you know, a lot of things that I'm seeing right now is the market is super hot. And everybody has, I mean, this is definitely a seller's market. I mean, here here in Idaho, we have less than a one-month supply of inventory in the residential sector of our market. And a normal market is six months. That's what that's an equal market where you've got equal buyers and sellers. You're supposed to have a six-month supply of inventory. We have less than a month. And so what can people do when they have that kind of a situation where they can't possibly, I mean, they're doing multiple bid situations and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they know they can sell theirs tomorrow, but what do they do to make sure that they can actually utilize a 1031 in such a hot
1: market? Right. Well, and that's that's a huge problem, but it's not a new problem and it's not unique. The worst time to finish a 1031 exchange and buy your property is also the best time to start your 1031 exchange right? because that's the sale. So, and by the same token, the worst time to start an exchange in a buyer's market is the best time to finish an exchange. So Mm -hmm. that's always been the case. So what can you do to mitigate some of that? Because it's a real problem. The first thing would be never forget That at a 1031 exchange, you're not just a buyer. You're not helpless and powerless. You're also a seller. So if if the sellers are having that much power, instead of just selling your property and then trying to run around like Chicken Little and find a new property, sell your property with a contingency that allows you to locate your new property before executing the sale. You can That's use great. contingencies on both sides. Yeah. And that works really well. Secondly, like all real estate investors, we get we're junkied, right? I'm a junkie. So I'm researching all the time. And the reason for that is that so that when I do sell, I'll already know exactly what's happening in the market where I want to go. And I'll know a good deal the instant I see it. So I can yep. jump on it quick. So yep. research is key. Now, the other thing that, that is really powerful with 1031 exchanges is that you don't, they're, they're market agnostic. So you can go find what someone, I think it was Carlton Sheets, way back in the old days called the hole in the market. You know, where's that place that exists where it's inequitable, where prices are lower than they should be. So maybe selling in California, or where you're at in, in Boise, where things are just crazy, but buying in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where it's moving a little bit slower, but rents are supporting that. right? And that's the whole premise of going from a highly appreciated environment to a high cash flow environment. Correct. So you can move that property around wherever you want. And that can be a great way to mitigate that risk as well. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you're just gonna to have to brave it. And what I find, we do some anecdotal surveys once in a while, and it looks like less than 10% of all of our exchanges fail because people can't find good properties. So Well, the other thing
0: too, there, there's there's one other scenario that, that you could do too, and that's a reverse.
1: That is correct, that's absolutely correct. Now a reverse to have, exchange-
0: You a pretty big huevos because you've gotta go buy while all your capital still tied up, right? And you've got to know, know that you've got it sold. I, I like, I actually, I really like what you said, though, where we've got the contingency in there that I'm going to buy once I identify because that solves the problem without having to get out ahead of your bus and go buy something with with, with your seller in tow. Right. But there is, there is the option to do the reverse.
1: Reverse exchanges are pretty awesome in the right case and particularly – if you're dealing with pricier properties and hotter markets. Now, in a reverse exchange, what happens is the statutory order of a 1031, you have to close your sale before you take title to your new property. What the reverse exchange does is it adds a piece in the middle where the QI takes title to your new property and holds it. So it's still not in your name. Right, And then as soon as you close the sale of your old property, title transfers from the QI to you. And that then completes your exchange. But as you can imagine, the safeguards to do that get to be a little bit pricey. So, yes. But it's a great option because a lot of times our people are able to make enough money off of running both properties concurrently. Because while we own the property, you're in control of it, so you're making the income. You're still making the income off the property you're gonna sell. So during that period of time, you're actually double dipping your income and net net profit. And many times they can make enough money during that to pay for the reverse exchange. Yeah, so that can yeah. be a great option. There's one other thing I totally forgot. There is a type of several types of products that are very passive, and that moves slower than regular real estate, but qualify for 1031 treatment. And many times these are fractionalized commercial assets like a Delaware statutory trust or a tenant in common property. And what these are where a syndicator will put together 300 investors, each buying one small part of a large food distribution warehouse or something because those move a little bit slower, they're a great hedge to identify as one of your potentials so that if everything else falls apart, you can move into one of those and make your six to 7%, but still shelter the tax. And when that gets sold three to four years later, you then do another 1031 back into wherever you want to go. Yeah.
0: So Dave, what States are you working in?
1: That's a beautiful thing about 1031 is because it's a federal statute, it applies in all 50 states equally, including the territories of Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, we will work in all of those places. I make a special caveat that if you're going to do an exchange in Guam or the USVI, I got to be there to make sure your money gets where it's going. I knew that was coming. I, I mean, I could just tell you're a pretty smart guy.
0: And, and now I know that you are absolutely on the ball, Dave. Nothing's going to slip by you. Yeah, I mean, you're looking out for nothing. my clients, my friend. Absolutely. You would hate for somebody to be uh, doing a 1031 exchange into something that wasn't quite up to par. <laughs> exactly. So, so, Dave, what is when is the best time to start talking to a QI about a 1031 exchange?
1: You know, if all you're wanting is a transaction, the only rule that's required is that the QI be in place prior to the closing of the sale. If you call the QI after your sale is consummated, you're toast. So the only requirement is that it be prior to the closing of the sale. Now, my personal record for something like that is 22 minutes but that's where I got all of this gray hair. So we don't recommend that, but anything prior to the close, that's the statutory answer. The reality answer is that this is not just a paper transaction if you use it correctly. This is a strategic ongoing positioning that is taking you from beginning investor to advanced retired investor enjoying your wealth. And just as you would spend all the time you needed to train yourself in whatever job task or role you wanted to do, the same should be true of the 1031. So I would find the QI and get comfortable with them. Who's going to help you strategically think through, I've got a property in Boise. I don't like this market. How can I get into Kansas city or Cash flow has been great, but I'm tired of dealing with that kind of tenants. How can I go buy something that's just going to sit and appreciate? Or, you know, I'd like to go from single families into multifamily or into commercial. Or, Or I'd like to end up buying vacation rentals and converting them into my primary residence someday. All of those things are possible, but they take forethought and planning. So I like, to, I like to think, and hopefully that's how we act as a QI, as someone who is just a part of your team, just like your accountant. Let the accountant tell you what pothole you hit. I'd like to be the person to tell you how to avoid the next one.
0: Right. And, you know, that's a, that's a great point because a lot of people do just look at it as a transactionary. And, you know, the statistics of realtors being used a second time are, are you know, low double digits, but a QI is somebody that you do form a relationship with because you're, I mean, I've done plenty of 1031 exchanges, but I've always had to make sure that I know that the QI has got my best interest in mind, understands my transaction, because it doesn't matter how mundane or vanilla my transaction is to me. It's everything. And being able to get on board with the QI and make sure that we both understand how important this is, what's gonna happen and that everybody's okay I's are dotted teaser crossed I would hate to be the guy sweating bullets and doing the 22 minute version and hoping <laughs> it was you know hoping it was perfect and nothing went wrong because that would be so last minute it'd be crazy yeah. but to yeah. be able to be comfortable and to be able to make the calls and say hey Dave you know this is what I've got this is the verbiage I've got in my contract that notifies the other party that we're gonna do at 1031 this is what I'm thinking um, you know, these are the days that I'm counting and know that I've got everything there is, is what a lot of people need to do, especially when you're doing your first one. And that's such a great service that that your company gives because you're able to look through that. The other thing I heard you mention as, as a savvy uh, qualified exchange, that you guys are also in touch with other markets where you can reach out to other people and go, hey, you know what, these guys out of Kansas City are exchanging. Uh, our direction for appreciation and now we're taking Californians and we're going that way because they're, they're taking the appreciation for cash flow and you're kind of like a mobile operator where you're able to plug and play different people into different market segments because that's what that's what the network that we create in real estate really does, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right and we're like the Switzerland of real estate investing because we're the unrelated third party and all we do is just the 1031 exchange. So the fact that I'm able to introduce people is awesome, but we're just this standalone. We got no to grind. And so those kinds of relationships are really key. It's, you know, you know, who you don't want to be, you don't want to be the realtor for those people in the 22 minute exchange. No. Because I was actually at the table. My client was finishing up and buying. And, you know, I walk in the room and they think, yeah, what's Guido doing here? And who are you? Well, i the QI. What's that? Well, my client here deferred all the tax on his profit. He's not finishing that up. They turned and looked at their realtor and said, can he do that? The realtor kind of went, yeah. and they looked at him and said, you're fired. Now, they were joking, but I, I swear I saw his heart skip a beat. But, but that's the thing. You want to be able to work with people who understand it Right. People who can help you walk through it. And the longevity that comes and the relationships that comes from that is so valuable. I have one family we're on our third generation with. We did exchanges for grandpa who died. His son got the properties at that step-up in bases and started doing his own. And then all the gain after that, he just passed on to his children a couple of years ago. Yeah. And they're now doing it. Yeah. And because we've been with them through all of that, it's a pretty easy process.
0: Yeah. So, Dave, where where can people find your company? I mean, you know, that, that's the whole point of this show is to, is to show people not only what they can do with real estate, but who they should be doing business with. So where can my listeners find you and get in touch with you and your company?
1: Yeah, best way to get a hold of us is right through our education portal, which is the1031investor.com. And if you go there, you can talk to me directly. We've also placed, oh my gosh, I think at last count, it was like 34 YouTube videos that talk about various elements of strategy. They're all short, but if you've got insomnia, they'll probably help with that as well. But all sorts of calculators to help you with gain, calendars, you know, it's like we say, it's not just a paper transaction, it's a relationship that's gonna help you get from wherever you're at to your sailboat or whatever it is you want it to be.
0: Right. Well, so your YouTube channel is the 1031 Investor.
1: Yeah, go to the 1031investor.com and that will direct you right to Okay, great. The so we can
0: get to those videos, we can get to those calculators, we can get to that information. And then when you're at the 1031investor, you can hit info at, you can get a hold of Dave directly. Set up appointments Dave, I want to anytime. thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Real Estate Rundown and educating our listeners as to how this simple tool can be done that makes such a dramatic difference in how quickly you can get to that critical mass that Dave talked about to where you can get to your sailboat and get to your place in the sun. Dave, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. Thanks guys for joining us on the Real Estate Rundown. Join us again for another episode very, very soon.